Hey, Prime members, you can listen to Intelligence Matters ad-free on Amazon Music. Download the app today. This spring, if you'd rather spend time enjoying your lawn instead of trying to keep it alive, there's good news. True Green is the easiest and most affordable way to get a beautiful lawn. All you have to do is water and mow, and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and even some things you might not even think of. They'll do all of it, while you can do literally anything else. With True Green, you could have your lawn looking as good as a putting green. That's not hyperbole. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour. True Green offers a satisfaction guarantee, and they have a verified best price promise, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people guaranteed. Looking to instantly upgrade your Mother's Day gift from typical to meaningful? Shop Etsy. Get up to 30% off well-crafted and personalized gifts from participating shops until May 12th. This year, embrace your creative side. You know, the side your mom gave you? And shop Etsy for custom jewelry, style pieces, home decor, and extra special items she'll adore. Need something original and affordable for Mother's Day? Etsy has it. Shop until May 12th for up to 30% off gifts for mom. Terms apply. This is Intelligence Matters with former acting director of the CIA, Michael Morell. Brought to you by Lockheed Martin. Your mission is ours. A joint advisory with the FBI has formally accused Beijing of attempting to steal COVID-19 research and data. What can you tell us about that threat? Is it all about a vaccine or is it broader than that? You know, my concern here from a cyber uh, security resilience perspective is um, these are sometimes organizations that are not Fortune 100, Fortune 500 with well capitalized uh, security teams and CIO and mm. CISO shops. In um, some cases, they, they just don't have the same resources and therefore any sort of intrusion could be disruptive uh, to the overall effort. Is it just the Chinese or is it other governments as well? You know, if you're not doing it, you're not trying kind of at this point. We do expect every every organ, every every uh, intelligence service to be in the mix here. And, and that's kind of the thing about a pandemic, right, is that it's, it's not just one or two countries affected. It is truly a global event. So every country is experiencing COVID in, in different ways, but but they're all experiencing Campaigns have always been on the radar uh, for foreign intelligence services. On the election side, the infrastructure side rather, again, we've got a better uh, understanding and visibility across the landscape. We see on a daily basis just normal automated scanning bad guys trying to do bad things. But in terms of this sort of coordinated, orchestrated activity that we saw in 16 against you know, the Illinois uh, voter registration database. We haven't really seen, you know, something at scale. We have better ability to see that. We've put additional harding in place. We've messaged very clearly over the last three and a half years. We've got to make sure that resilience is in place. So even if something bad does happen, A, we got the paper backups, right? Um, that voters know what to do. Voters know that, that, that election night reporting is unofficial reporting. It's, it's just as much about building the resilience of the people that participate in the voting process as it is about hardening the election systems themselves. Okay, it's time to commit. 
2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Chris Krebs is the Director of the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency at the Department of Homeland Security. Prior to joining DHS in early 2017, Chris served as the Director of Cybersecurity Policy at Microsoft. This is Chris's second tour working at the Department of Homeland Security. He previously served as a senior advisor to the Assistant Secretary for Infrastructure Protection, where he played a formative role in a number of DHS's programs. We just sat down with Chris to talk about the security of our election infrastructure as we approach the 2020 elections. Chris, welcome back to Intelligence Matters. It is good to have you on the show again. Hey, Michael. Thanks for having me. Uh, glad to be here. So I'd love to to start by having you remind our listeners, Chris, of the responsibilities of your agency, the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency, CISA. Could you just give us a reminder on what you guys do? What what are you responsible for? Yeah, so uh, founded in uh, November of 2018, um, part of the Department of Homeland Security. Effectively, we're the nation's risk advisors, so we work with the private sector across a range of critical infrastructure sectors uh, to address both cyber and physical risks um, and, and ultimately get the, uh, the, the, the critical infrastructure of the United States in a much more resilient, hardened position. And of course, that includes a significant uh, number of uh, uh, hot topics these days, including elections, but also helping uh, secure the, the COVID response, the vaccine developers, the, the healthcare institutions, uh, as well as working with uh, any number of organizations as they kind of move into the digital transformation, making sure that they've got the uh, insight and guidance they need to do it in a secure way. Yeah, great, great transition, Chris, because um, while I want to spend a good chunk of time talking about election security, I do want to ask a couple of questions about COVID. And maybe the first one is, how is your agency handling keeping your employees safe. They're obviously essential and they have to work. So are you on shift work or can they work from home or how do you guys, how are you guys handling that? So, I mean, that, that is the kind of the, the question of the times, right? Um, so we're actually 93% telework right now, uh, about 2,500 employees, 93% telework. The majority of those folks that are working in an office environment are either in a SCIF, you know, classified space, or in an emergency operations center um, out in, a, in the state, uh, across the, the 50 states. Um, and, and yeah, we've, we've had to kind of reduce footprint and, and introduce uh, social distancing measures for those that are in the office. But we've been actually pleasantly surprised with the productivity um, for those folks that are telework or adopting this kind of remote work approach. I, you know, I myself get in the office uh, about once a week or so, um, and, and I've found uh, honestly, is as productive, if not more productive than, um, you know, the, the pre-COVID, you know, the old normal. Uh, but for those folks that we do in the office, again, social distancing, all the, the PPE, 
or at least cloth uh, face coverings and, and disinfectants. Um, but it's just, you know, being smart about the times and not rushing back into it, really enjoying um, the ability to, to free up the workforce a little bit and really trying to understand what the, the post-COVID environment looks like and can we keep this sort of telework posture and maybe save the American taxpayer a few bucks in terms of uh, real estate and, and, <laughs> and leases for office space. Yeah. Have you been able to keep everybody safe so far? You know, we've, we've of course, had um, uh, just the, the normal number of, I think, uh, COVID infections across the workforce. But I think across the board, we've been pretty fortunate in terms of a safe and, you know, healthy inhale uh, uh, team here at CISA. Um, so again, you know, we're looking to keep these best practices in place and following CDC guidance, of course, and following the lead of, of the various state and local health departments. So Chris, you've issued guidance on how companies can help employees telework securely. Why did you, why'd you take that step? Why did you do that? So it was pretty clear to me early on, um, you know, just, just even what we were doing as an organization that a number of different, whether it's a company or a federal agency, was going through a pretty dramatic shift. There's a terrible joke that I uh, tend to repeat. You know, who was behind your uh, your digital transformation? Was it your CEO, your CTO, or COVID? And what we're finding is a lot of organizations have tried to make the shift over the last couple of years, but competing business priorities uh, and other uh, uh, organizational commitments had really hindered that tech transformation. Uh, but COVID, man really snapped folks too, and uh, had to go to this, this remote operational environment. And that brings a whole lot of different security considerations, technology considerations. Do you have the appropriate tools in place, whether it's collaboration, how are you patching your VPNs, those things we've been banging on for, for, for years now. Um, and so what, what we saw was a number of organizations, ourselves including, included, but also across the federal government, uh, were issuing guidance. So we try to pull everything together into a one-stop shop. And, and the best place to go for that is cisa.gov slash telework. Uh, but where we pull together our own stuff, NSA, NIST, uh, and then private sector resources from the, uh, the, the Global Cyber Alliance, Cyber Readiness Institute, even stuff from our international partners uh, over in the UK. Uh, just really trying to pull stuff together that, that there's, there's one place to go to, whether it's you know, the collaboration tools uh, that folks are using, here's how to deploy them in a, in a secure way. Um, in providing not just the CIOs and the CISOs, but the executives, the C-suite, the boards, the general counsels, the things they need to keep in mind is, is they're considering not just what today looks like, but you know, the next year, two years. So what are some of the key points that, that, that you think companies should think about as they work to secure all of this new telework and keep it, keep it safe? Yeah, so it, it, it all goes back to what your vulnerability management approach looks like. How are you patching some of those critical appliances and virtual private network connections? Um, that's we've seen the bad guys exploit it. We issued we've issued some guidance over the last several months. Um, just VPNs are a, a, a target, and what we're seeing in some cases is organizations are not only you know they're, they're not patching. In fact, they're moving away from VPNs and just mm -hmm. direct connections to the cloud. Uh, but also, how are you maintaining your your patch uh, for your Windows machines, your 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 Mac devices, um, and then multi-factor authentication across the board? You know, what can you do to really truly harden uh, the identity management um, 
uh, posture of an organization. Again, best place to go get the CISA, CISA stuff, uh, cisa.gov slash telework. Chris, you've also issued a joint advisory with the FBI that has formally accused Beijing of attempting to steal COVID-19 research and data. What can you tell us about that threat? Is it all about a vaccine or is it broader than that? How do you think about that? Well, you know, you come at it from the top and you're like, uh, so China's uh, conducting cyber espionage? Uh, color me surprised. You know, this, these are things that I think we've all expected. In fact, we've been talking about it for months, the first real product we've put out. Um, they, you, you know, predictably, any foreign intelligence services could be get, trying to get an understanding of what other countries are doing, what their response is, what their approach to therapeutics may be and treatment going forward. You know, my concern here from a cyber uh, security resilience perspective is um, these are sometimes organizations that are not Fortune 100, Fortune 500 with well-capitalized uh, security teams and CIO mm. and CISO shops. Um, some cases, they, they just don't have the same resources, and therefore, any sort of intrusion could be disruptive uh, to the overall effort. Um, so this is much, much bigger than, than ransomware, but this is you know, destabilizing networks, and it is focusing on, you know, from a, you know, confidentiality, integrity, availability triad perspective, the CIA triad, we're thinking, I'm focused uh, uh, significantly on, you know, maintaining the availability and maintaining the integrity of uh, the systems and the information that's that's running across those systems. Is it just the Chinese, or is it other governments as well? I don't know to what extent well, you can again, talk about that. Know, it, yeah, you know, if you're not doing it, you're not trying. Kind of at this point, we do expect every every organ every every uh, intelligence service to be in the mix here. Uh, the Chinese have, have obviously been um, one of the, the more brazen uh, in terms of their approach, uh, but but others are in the game too. This it's a very active space, very active space, and and that's kind of the thing about a pandemic, right? Is that it's it's not just one or two countries affected. It is truly a global event, and so everybody is. Uh, every country is 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 experiencing COVID in, in different ways, but but they're all experiencing. And Chris, is it all about is it all about espionage, right? Is it all about stealing information, or is there concern? Is there any evidence that people are actually trying to do damage to the work that our research institutes are trying to do on the vaccine? So when you roll up all the different threat actors, um, both state and and non-state actors you get both the intelligence, the espionage piece, but you also get destructive attacks, absolutely. There, you know, the ransomware actors, you know, we, we you know, kind of hoped against hope that there would be some honor among thieves. Uh, and what we found is even after some initial indications that particularly crews like the, the, maze, uh, the maze ransomware guys had, had said, we're gonna hold off. What we found after all is they, they did not, they were still exploiting um, the moment to go uh, to go get their uh, to, to get their ransoms. Uh, those attacks are absolutely destructive. They absolutely take organizations offline. Um, you know, when you think back to WannaCry, when the National Health Service in the UK was disrupted, there were some significant impacts there. Now, this again, this is on a global scale. So you're seeing a situation where a hospital could be impacted uh, and their networks offline. They can't conduct uh, uh, clinical operations. You can't, it's not as easy as just transferring those patients to another hospital mm -hmm. uh, in this environment. You never know what you're transferring and do you even have anything you can transfer to? 
So we're absolutely seeing destructive attacks across the, uh, the board right now. So if anybody needs any reason to be reminded of the importance of cybersecurity, it's the fact that somebody could actually, you know, hold us back in terms of getting a vaccine to deal with this pandemic. Yeah. And, and I think we've taken, we've, we've taken that approach previously for elections. Well, I'm sure we'll get into that. Um, you know, sometimes when you talk to election officials or you talk to healthcare officials and you talk about Russia, you talk about China, you talk about North Korea and Iran, it, it doesn't always resonate with them. They may read about it, they may see it on the news, but they don't necessarily feel it. Um, ransomware, though, ransomware is something that they intimately feel, whether it's their community or their, their, their peer networks, they see ransomware attacks on a regular basis. Um, and if you can address a number of the, the key ransomware uh, uh, vectors, then you can actually close out a lot of the threats from some of those state actors. So we've really put a lot of emphasis behind ransomware uh, in, a, in a number of different uh, uh, sectors. So Chris, maybe just one more question before we get to election security, and it's sort of a 50,000 foot question. So if you step back from COVID, where are we today in terms of the government's and the private sector's preparedness for dealing with cyber attacks? How do you think about how far we've come and how far we still need to go? <sighs> um, so just today, we issued uh, a series of products, uh, a toolkit called Cyber Essentials Toolkit. It builds on a product we issued last, uh, last fall. And really the concept here is the CISO community has, the IT security community has an overwhelm, you know, an abundance of guidance. They're good. Um, what we have to continue focusing in, in on are the, the people that make the decisions that enable uh, the actions of the IT security community. And that's the C-suite, that's the boards of the directors, that's the general counselors, the business side folks, um, underserved community. So we're putting a lot, a lot of uh, focus on higher level executive, uh, that community. Why is that important? Because it starts at the top. It's always about leadership. The more leadership understands, the more they understand the business risk, which then leads to the investment. And the investment then leads to, you know, opening up uh, the floodgates for the CISO community to make the right, uh, you know, to get those investments in place for the capabilities. So I think back a couple of years ago to the RSA conference, and the theme was, this was two years ago, the theme was better. And that was, the, that was kind of the, the feeling is like, hey, things are better than they were a couple of years ago. Still a long way to go, but we're getting better. It's the awareness at the leadership levels is really opening up the investment channel so we can build out those capabilities. And I think across the board, you see that. You see that there's more awareness of the need to, to take the right steps on cybersecurity. And I think COVID right now is just going to accelerate through the digital transformation, accelerate investment in cyber, um, cybersecurity capabilities. Uh, and you know, there, there may be a market consolidation in the meantime, but so we're absolutely headed in the right direction on the defense side. So, so election security. So how do you assess the threat landscape today as it pertains to foreign interference in the elections? How do you think about the, the threat that we are facing and are going to face as we get closer to November? Yeah, so I, I always like the framing of the Intelligence Community Assessment 2017 uh, that had three primary buckets. It was the technical targeting of election infrastructure. The second was the hack and leak campaigns or, or activities focusing on the political organizations trying to get sensitive information and some, uh, in some cases, op, oppo research. 
And the third is just the broader destabilizing influence operations, uh, trying to just undermine uh, public confidence and create chaos. Those are absolutely three active areas or domains of, of uh, activity by uh, a range of actors, Russia, China, Iran, North Korea, and uh, others that are unattributed at this point. Um, everybody has their own different strategic objectives. I tend to think that that we have put in place a around that first area, that election infrastructure space, we put a, a number of uh, security improvements in place, resilience improvements. We've built these relationships across the country with the election officials, secretaries of state. We, I work with, we work with pretty much every single one of them. We work with over 6,000 election jurisdictions. We have uh, uh, intrusion detection systems across uh, all 50 states and their election systems right now. We have mechanisms to share threat intelligence. We do annual exercises. Everything is in place right now, much, much better posture than we were uh, in 2016. And that's just because, you know, there was this Sputnik moment that, that we just woke up and said, wow, you can destabilize a democracy through these sorts of efforts. So, so I think we're in a much, much better position from a resilience perspective on the election infrastructure side. Same goes, I think, with the, the hack and leak. Campaigns are more aware of it. There, there are ways on the private sector side uh, where Microsoft, Google, uh, a bunch of nonprofits have gotten together and they're offering and they've gotten from the Federal Election Commission um, some, some ability to provide services uh, at low or no cost. And then on the, on, the, on the disinfo side, I think that's really the more complex uh, aspect of this. It, it's, it's, it's just a, a psychological operations, uh, psychological warfare. How are they getting into our heads, hacking our brains, we've said before, trying to get um, us to, to lose confidence in our, you know, our entire system, this, this, this American uh, experiment. Uh, and, and we're not alone here. Uh, you know, you talk to our, counter, our counterparts in, in Europe um, uh, and throughout the, throughout the world. Um, this is just, this is the, the new normal. We're going to take a quick break. And we'll be right back with more of our discussion with Chris Krabs. Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset. Hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. So, Chris, have we actually seen... um, successful penetrations of campaigns or any related institutions or, or just so far attempts? So in terms of that, the, so, so again, breaking it up into the election infrastructure and then the campaigns, um, you know, this this is one of those things where um, campaigns have always been on the radar uh, for foreign intelligence services. This is, this is just, you know, it's policymaking. They want to be on the inside. They want to know what the campaigns are thinking, what the candidates are thinking, where they're going to go. So, so countries can start, you know, our adversaries in particular can, can understand what, what the next regime or administration might be thinking. That is active, active, active space. Um, on the election side, um, the infrastructure side, rather, again, we've got a better uh, understanding and visibility across the landscape 
we see on a daily basis just normal automated scanning bad guys trying to do bad things taking care taking advantage of uh you know being opportunistic basically uh but in terms of this sort of coordinated uh uh orchestrated activity that we saw in 16 against you know the illinois uh, voter registration database uh for instance we haven't really seen you know something at scale we have better ability to see that we put additional harding in place We've messaged very clearly over the last three and a half years um, about that sort of activity. So we think there's a good combination of deterrence um, by cost imposition and, and deterrence by denial in place. They will continue to push off that sort of activity. But we're not taking that for granted. We are actively looking for it over there. Our intelligence community partners are actively looking for it. And we are actively monitoring systems here to stay ahead of it. But most importantly, We've got to make sure that resilience is in place. So even if something bad does happen, A, we got the paper backups, right? Um, that voters know what to do. Voters know that, that, that election night reporting is unofficial reporting. That it takes time to get that final certified result. Again, it's, not, it's, it's just as much about building the resilience of the people that participate in the voting process as it is about hardening the election systems themselves. So, so will all the states have permanent paper record for the 2020 vote? So in the, in the 2016 uh, election, it was about 80 to 82 percent of votes cast in the country had a paper record associated with them. And that's whether it's automatically generated or it's kind of a sidecar or it's a, a, a absentee ballot. Um, by the time, and, and I have not adjusted the numbers for some of the, the states that are shifting um, to absentee ballots or mail-in voting because of COVID. But what, what we would expect is somewhere on the order of about 92% of votes cast will have that paper record associated with it. And that's, that is a good chunk of the country. That's a good chunk of the, the competitive states as well from a you know, policy or political side. Um, there, there are absolutely some states that are going to be uh, in, in a tough spot in terms of not having paper, and they have invested in additional security controls, monitoring, uh, um, hardening their systems. New Jersey's the, the best example just yet. You know, they don't have the resources funding required uh, right now to, to get there, but they have been investing in, in the cyber side. We work really closely with New Jersey um, on, on uh, a number of the things they're putting in place. So uh, sig again, significantly, dramatically better posture than we were. And, you know, on, on that note, what, one thing I'll, I'll add is that a lot of these systems that we're concerned about, um, that, that, you know, that actual, the, that equipment you interface with on a voting day, um, you might find in some states that, that they're out of the system just because of, or they're out of the process just because of COVID, because states are making shifts to, um, to vote by mail or absentee voting. So uh, again, this COVID in some cases is actually cleaning up some of the, the lingering vulnerabilities in the system. So Chris, did you all learn anything in particular from the Iowa caucus smartphone app incident? Oh yeah. I mean, there, there are a bunch of things to take away here. Um, I think first and foremost is just from a non-technical side, more of a kind of incident response side is, is you know whether you're a political party, you're a state organization, you've got to have an incident response plan. You have to know what you're going to tell the public, what you're going to tell the, the parties, 
um, you have to have a rapid response mechanism to get your arms around the problem and then clearly and confidently communicate to the public what's going on. The second piece is, and I already touched on a little bit, is, is that unofficial voting, or the unofficial results rather, um, we, we've got to reinforce that these official results, the certification of the vote, takes time. It's in many cases going to be weeks. It's not that night. Um, so, so not jumping on to uh, some of the issues that may pop up. Uh, but then also, you know, we've been kind of on, on board and we issued some guidance a couple of weeks ago that took a look at um, internet-based voting, whether it's an app or whatever. We said, look, there's a higher degree of risk here just because of the systems you're using and the protocols that are supporting the process. Um, we really would encourage you to have a physical ballot associated with the bat, with the vote, rather than again re relate, re relying on the electrons. Uh, and I think that just is supported again by by what we saw in Iowa. I, the National Academy of Sciences, uh, Engineering, and Mathematics had a, a report on this about a year and a half ago that just said it's internet voting is not ready for prime time. Um, too many too many issues still remain in, in just the the overarching security protocols. Yeah. So, so Chris, you talked earlier about the foreign focus from an intelligence collection perspective on the campaigns. I'm sure the same is true of the RNC and DNC. How do they think about securing themselves? Is it a top priority for them? Do they are they paying attention to it? Do they understand the vulnerabilities? Are you able to help them or not? How does all of that work? Yeah, so we have been engaged with both the RNC and the DNC for a number of years now, you know, predating, um, in fact, the, at least in my time here, predating the 2018 midterms, uh, and have found really good uptake and partnership uh, with us and transparency. We have seen them embrace uh, cybersecurity and embrace protecting their systems. Uh, I think they, again, like I said, with, with the, some of the uh, uh, private sector uh, technology solutions, uh, provided a, given a break by the FEC that allows them to provide services. Because when you think about a campaign, if you've got a dollar to spend, um, anything spent on internal security is, is something that's going away from, from raising the campaign's profile. So the ability to provide those services at low or no cost is, is, a, is a game changer. Um, but again, RNC and DNC both have been all aboard. Campaigns have been all aboard. We've met with both uh, the, the Trump and the Biden campaigns. Uh, providing us a, a, a range of offerings on, on our cybersecurity services. Chris, there's been a lot of discussion about the security of absentee and mail-in ballots. And I'm just wondering, from the perspective of the kinds of things that CISA is paid to worry about, is there anything special with regard to mail-in or absentee ballots? So I think what you got to separate here um, is is the systems from the process. The president's concerned about the process. Um, from a systems perspective, we're looking at those infrastructure aspects that facilitate the execution of the process. Um, and what I mean by that is what are the what systems are are required to design uh, a mail-in ballot, to print it, to receive it, scan it, tabulate it. Those are the things that we're focused on from a cybersecurity perspective. So, you know, early on in COVID, it was funny because, again, I, I come back to the RSA conference. Um, we were working with our state and local uh, election officials 
uh, back in early or mid to late February, thinking through, okay, how are we going to keep um, vote in person voting uh, safe and, and sanitized and and you know uh, people that can come in and out. It was things like have enough pencils, have a disinfectant, things like that. And then over time, we saw as, as the pandemic grew, there was a shift of of a number of states saying, you know what, maybe we should not have people come in. We can use some of the other uh, authorities that they can that they have available to them. And that's where we saw this this move again towards towards uh, mail in ballots. But again. They didn't have necessarily have the systems in place, so they rapidly acquiring the systems. We're providing guidance uh, and recommendations recommendations on how to control that, but at the same time, recognize that not everybody's going to be shifting to mail ins. That every, you know that states still provide for in person voting. So how do we we provide them guidance on both these alternative uh, approaches to to uh, voting, which in, in many states are not the alternatives. It is you know Oregon, hundred percent, uh, almost hundred percent mail-in uh these are the we have to address both the the mail-in side as well as the the in-person side in this you know time of COVID. so let me ask you kind of an unfair question here but in terms of of everything that you're asked to do with regard to election security do you have everything you need in terms of both the resources and the authorities to do your job so i i mean this is a this is a good question on the authority side. Um, there's a, you know, one of the examples that, that I like to use is early in the administration, there was conversation about um, regular, you know, shifting some of the Article One, Section 4 requirements that federal government takes a stronger hand in administering federal elections and regulating certain aspects. Um, I, I'm, look, I'm a middle, middle child, so I, uh, I see compromise. Uh, in, in coalition building where I can. And, and I've always found that, you know, honey is, is going to get you the flies uh, a little bit easier. And we spent a lot of time early on in the administration uh, building relationships. We had absolute missteps. Um, we, we misfired right out, right out of the gate. But I think we got our feedback on us. We, we committed uh, ourselves to election security and supporting our state locals. And rather than taking an overly, you know, burden some regulatory approach where we would have been found ourselves in court like that uh we said let's let's work through this together tell us what your problems are tell us where we're screwed up and we haven't fixed this you know we, we haven't provided the things you need and that's what got us to where we are today um where we're working with with over six thousand jurisdictions we've got all 50 states as a member of the multi-state isac that shares threat intelligence that shares them best practices. We've got Albert sensors out there on every, on all, all 50 states. Like those are the things that I can point to as real significant progress um, that, that, and validation that we took the right approach. Now, resources, you know, I think Congress has always been, has, has, has been pretty, pretty generous to us. Um, but in some cases, there's just, there's just nothing better than good people out there, uh, boots on the ground. I think in the run-up to the 2018 election, I had over, in the month of October running up, I had about I had 500 people across the organization that were engaging in election security. Um, that that's you know same thing we're gonna we're gonna be doing uh, uh, in the run-up to the 2020. It's people, people, people. So really getting people that understand how elections work, that understand how to talk to election officials, uh, and, and tailor solutions to their requirements. 
Um, that's, that's where I put a lot of the focus. So, so Chris, you talked about that third bucket, right? That, that foreign disinformation bucket, you know, via social media or different ways um, and how it relates to the, the election. Is that something that, that you all play a role in or is that somebody else's responsibility? Michael, I'm disappointed in the question because that means that you have not seen the war on pineapple <laughs> uh, campaign that we launched I, last I summer. I haven't. <laughs> uh, so, yeah. So, so here's kind of how at least it's CISA that we, we view the disinformation side uh, problem. It, 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 it's almost a supply and demand issue. So on the supply side, what we're seeing is other parts of the federal government um, you know, between the intelligence community, law enforcement, uh, some of the Title X uh, actors are, are actively out there trying to disrupt the supply of disinformation from our adversaries. But the companies are also involved, are also involved in this. You've seen a number of uh, inauthentic uh, account activity disruption from, from the platforms. We're on the other side of that, though. We're, we're, we, I don't have those authorities, right? I, I'm the convener. I bring people together. We can help facilitate that by sharing information um, between state and locals and the social medias. When our state and local partners see inf uh, uh, disinfo activity, they can share it through us back to the, the, uh, the platforms. But we're focused on that. We're on the demand side. We're trying to, to increase uh, the, the awareness of this problem set. We have been working with state and local officials, um, election officials on the Trusted Info 2020 campaign, because that's what's going to happen. When we run up to the 2020 election, voters need to know where they can go get authoritative information on how to vote in their state. What better place to go than the uh, state senior election officials, the secretary of state or the state election director. Trusted Info 2020 is all about pointing people to those election officials to get info on where to vote, how to vote, and when to vote. So Chris, you've been, you've been great with your time. Let me just ask you one more question. We had Laura Rosenberger from the Alliance for Securing Democracy uh, at the German Marshall Fund on our show last week. I think you probably know her. She, she painted for us a picture of her nightmare scenario which was, you know, many, many more mail-in ballots, absentee ballots, which could take us longer in getting to a winner, you know, take us beyond election night to get a winner. Um, and then you mix in with that some Russian tampering with election systems, not necessarily to do any damage or to change any counts, but just to sow confusion and distrust, and then throw some Russian info ops on top of that, in terms of this is a failed election, right? The Americans couldn't get this right. There was a high degree of fraud. And, you know, all of that is a mix towards raising Americans' questions about how did the election go. And that has a, that has a kind of a feel of realism to me. And my question is not how do you prevent that from happening? My question is how do we build resilience with American citizens not to fall for such a Russian kind of trap. How do you think about that? Yeah, I mean, look, it, it, and the thing I think we need to get get our minds around is, is things have changed since 16. Um, it's not just Russia. They put the playbook out there. Any country that, that doesn't quite like the way the American experience is going uh, is going to get involved here or could get involved. Um, but back to the, you know, increasing the resilience, I think there's there's two or three things we need to do. First is, continue to point um, voters to 
uh, that trusted information, as I just talked about, the Trusted Info 2020 campaign. You know, go to your state and local election officials. They're the ones that are going to tell you uh, what, the, what, this, what the real deal is, when, where, and how to vote, uh, and then what the results are. Um, and the second piece is really reinforcing um, election night reporting is unofficial. And so it's on us to work with the media. Um, and we did some, uh, 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 some, uh, uh, some tabletop exercises in the run-up to 2018. We'll do it again for 2020. Uh, this is how things are going to work in the run-up to uh, uh, that November, uh, that day in November. And then lastly, reinforcing that we take this seriously. We're protecting these networks. And this is a all of government. This isn't CISA, just CISA out here on our, uh, you know, all, all by ourselves trying to protect these systems. You have the entirety of the federal government behind this effort here and working over there. Um, so I've got great partners in the intelligence community with Andy Berger at NSA, General Noxoni, uh, and his team over at, at Cyber Command. I've got uh, the, the, the FBI. We've got the Election Assistance Commission that's helping uh, get the funds out to our state and local partners. Uh, but this is something that, that I've taken on as one of my top priorities really since day one since I came into this job. And uh, I'm not walking away from it. We're going to be here and we're going we're gonna to fight through uh, the end on this one. Chris, thank you. Um, thank you so much for taking time out of your incredibly busy schedule. I really appreciate it. Um, and so do my listeners. Thank you. That was Chris Krebs. I'm Michael Morell. Please join us next week for another episode of Intelligence Matters. This has been the Intelligence Matters Podcast with former acting director of the CIA, Michael Morrell. Brought to you by Lockheed Martin. Your mission is ours. The podcast is produced by Olivia Gassis, Jamie Benson, and Jake Rosen. If you haven't already, subscribe, rate, and review wherever you download podcasts. You can follow the show on Twitter at Intel Matters Pod and follow Michael at Michael J. Morrell. Intelligence Matters is a production of CBS News Radio. Catch every episode of 60 Minutes, America's most watched news magazine show, as a podcast. Hear in-depth investigations across politics, news, and entertainment on your schedule. Listen to 60 Minutes ad-free on Wondery Plus.